0: I'm currently standing in the wasteland space outside the formerly vacant industrial building on a street named Little Paradise, just behind East Street, in which my studio sits. A meanwhile space earmarked for development, it is rented out to us artists before demolition. It is a square of broken tarmac and gravel, surrounded by a rather violent, pointed black iron fence. Left untamed since the retreat of industry in the area, plants now push through every crack, corner, and gap in the tarmac and walls. They are pretty much the same plants you see in any decaying or abandoned spaces in cities. Ruderules, or weeds. Ruderal, originating from the Latin word rubus, meaning rubble. Ruderules are plants that colonise areas of land that have experienced a disturbance. The pioneer species are the most hardy, and are the very first to colonise a barren environment. Through the lens of my phone and an AI plant database app I identify and document the flora that has turned this former industrial yard into an anarchic and impromptu garden. In the two years since the company moved out, the warehouse has been occupied by pioneering artists in need of space to create. I'm Ben Hartley, an artist based in Bristol. As a young artist increasingly aware of the gentrification occurring in the area I live and work, I want to know just how involved I and other artists are and if there's any hope for us artists as a community. To me, rude have come to signify the cycles of urban regeneration and gentrification that inevitably involve artists and creatives. Abandonment, facilitation of creative space, inevitable displacement and development.
1: My name is Sean Roy Parker. I'm an artist, um, educator and cook based in South London. Thinking about Ruderals as experimental beings makes me feel incredibly warm to them on a physiological level. I feel kin with them, they look for potential life and potential opportunities in unfavourable conditions. It sounds like I'm sort of describing myself. They find new patches of earth pulling up nitrogen and magnesium or phosphorus. They renaturalise soil and collect more debris as it blows past. And this like in turn creates a more hospitable environment for the less adaptable species. They attract wildlife, mostly pollinators like bees and butterflies, but also slugs, snails, flies, rodents who are looking for food and the habitat. The idea of wildness is something that I'm super interested in. Our idea in the city of wild it is extremely sanitised. We need to embrace the chaos of unfettered weeds, educate ourselves on culinary, medicinal and practical uses instead of dismissing them. We have a national case of plant blindness. I feel like moving through lockdown when people were spending more isolated time outside and thinking about projects like the lady in North London who has been, or I think it maybe started in Germany, where uh, they've been drawing or writing the names of weeds and trees like on the pavement in chalk. So there's this kind of sharing of resources and like a new impetus to gain knowledge about non-native species.
0: There is nothing particularly remarkable about this space. It's like any other urban wasteland across the country, but I find it here now at the beginning of considerable changes. The warehouse and adjacent lands await demolition to make way for the coming development of 329 high-rise homes for modern cosmopolitan urban inhabitants.
2: The new development at the up and coming Bedminster Green offers residents newly regenerated and fertile soils and room to expand.
3: We currently offer Buddleia, Budilea David E.
2: Common dandelion, Taraxacum officinale.
3: Common hogweed, Hieracium spondylium. Common plantain, Plantago major.
2: Common Thistle, Sonchus oleraceus.
3: Fringed willowherb, Epilobium ciliatum.
2: Goat willow, Salix capri. Gold moss stonecrop, Cedar maker.
3: Hairy willow herb, Epilobium hirsutum. Himalayan blackberry, Rubus armeniacus.
2: Hedge mustard, Cisimbria officinale
3: Hemp agrimony, Eupatorium cannabinum. Herb robert, Geranium robertianum.
2: Horseweed, Erigeron canadensis. Kenilworth ivy, Cimbalaria murrales.
3: Large bindweed, Calistegia sylvatica.
2: Old man's beard, Clematis vertabla. Perennial ryegrass, Lolium perenne.
3: Silver birch, Betula pendula.
2: Silvergreen bryum moss, Bryum argentium.
3: Spreading Pelletry Parietaria Judaica
2: Sycamore Asus Eudoplatonus
3: Tanzi Ragwort Jacobea Vulgaris
2: Wool Barley Hordium Marinum and And Wavy Hairgrass Avanella Flexuosa What's not to love about the exciting new growth at Bedminster Green? To find out more go to your local wasteland today! Development may result in destruction of natural environment. Developers are not responsible for any negative social, economic or ecological effects the development may have on local communities.
1: So artists are obviously an integral part of the gentrification process where they move on from newly gentrified areas where they've been outpriced um, and they move on to lesser known neighbourhoods where it's cheap and sometimes unfashionable. So you've got this influx of predominantly white art students, let's say, um, and they can really overwhelm and overload the local ecology. There are usually some warehouses which become studio complexes and this paves the way for sort of culture vultures and speculative capitalists in the form of boutiques and restaurants who propose to feed the masses affordably but end up attracting a lot of local tourism. So the cycle is complete when like the big lads move in, you know, supermarkets and um, chain restaurants and they compete with the small independent businesses. And then basically the rents become too high for anyone to stay there. I've also thinking about the um, the small business owners, you know, maybe the early adopters in terms of the the artists moving into the area who who are more, maybe more adaptable than some of the existing businesses in that way, you know, they have their foot in the door with the artists and they're able, you know, they have like strong social media presence or, or whatever it is and they're, they're much more flexible in terms of how they update and upgrade their business to to fit with the times. So in this way, you've got um, savvy independent business owners that, are almost like aspirational in in the sense of like they're up they're upwardly mobile while pretending to um care for and support the local businesses who were existent there before i find it's really difficult to uncouple the two artists and gentrifiers um you know artists are a litmus paper if you like uh anti-capitalism becomes aesthetic capitalism I live in Lewisham, which is in South London. It's pretty urban, pretty grey. The streets look like they're kind of regularly sprayed with glyphosate, and I never notice much pavement vegetation, which is something that I normally look for whenever I'm outside. There are plenty of shrubby areas, but I think, to be honest, the council spends a lot of money keeping the pavements clean and clear. Uh, I think it's a request from the constituents or, or it's just become the norm. For me, this reinforces the nature-human dichotomy that Bram Bushner and Robert Fletcher describe in uh, their book, The Conservation Revolution. Seeing humans as separate from nature, which disconnects us from our surroundings and creates commercial opportunities. My favourite spot is down by the river in Brookmill Park where the Ravensbourne shoots around the corner under a, a modernist train station. I often pick Alexander's which is in my top edibles, and recently found some water mint, uh, wintercress and bog myrtle. There are a few more kind of unplanned spaces like a car park opposite the shopping center, which is home to a carpet of lambs tongue, plantain and dandelion. It's got a low wooden barrier, so it's less trodden on by the public. There's also a spot in Deptford next to a train track that has a lot of sow thistle, I really like the mature stems, which are hollow and hexagonal and taste like a crisp iceberg lettuce leaf. It's a very vivid memory of my childhood. Uh, my mum used to make me peanut butter and lettuce sandwiches, so um, I kind of swap out the lettuce for, um, for Sophistle.
0: Hardy and well-adapted to harsh and polluted environments with low-quality soils, ruderals are integral in rehabilitating poor-quality sediments. When I first moved in, very little greenery had managed to force its way through the tarmac and gravel. As I am here today, just over a year later, many ruderal species have pushed their way through the now broken and washed out surface of the previously busy industrial yard. Nature takes advantage of the relative quiet of the lockdown period and warm summer months to blanket the old stairs and tarmac with climbing old man's beard, ivy and mosses. St. Catherine's Place is an echoey shopping precinct that sits mostly vacant. Apart from a Farm Foods and an Iceland that still retains its retro 80s signage, there is just a fruit stall and a Dandara marketing suite, which interestingly had also been an artist's studios in a previous life. The accompanying show home touts a depiction of a sanitised and commodified urban experience. Wind picks up leaves and plastic bags as I walk through. Ruderules poke up through the cracks between paving slabs and grow in untamed planters beside benches. It seems clear this area needs some kind of change, but is the kind of development that is coming and currently underway ultimately going to be good for local people, or will it have increasingly negative impacts that push residents further and further out of the city's core?
4: I'm Katie McCliment. I'm a senior lecturer in urban planning at UWE in Bristol. I lead the master's course. I'm interested in questions of planning theory, which are questions about why we, why we have a planning system and whose interests it serves. And I'm interested in community engagement and working with communities through my teaching as well. There was concerns, I would say, mainly around the sort of sense of overdevelopment. So it was a lot about the scale of the proposals for the Bedminster Green area, the heights of buildings, the densities of buildings, and also that there was a lack of a sense of maybe a master plan at that time. There seemed to be lots of um, large-scale applications coming in, um, which would obviously have a very big impact on that area without necessarily a sense of coordination between them, coordination between the new developments and coordination between the incoming developments and existing residents, existing retail areas, existing green spaces, and a concern within that that it was going to be very hard for people to have voices, their voices heard, the people that were living in the area. We make lots of judgments about people that participate in planning. We make judgments about their motivations and whether people are being selfish or people are trying to be standing up for um, themselves and their communities. I don't get a sense from anyone I talked to that they were trying to gentrify the area Many people I spoke to have been there for a while, but equally voices of people felt well educated, quite well able to express themselves, which probably isn't that surprising as they're the people that managed to organize a group and find an academic to talk to. So I just think there's maybe some, some questions there about who we're seeing those people, but also who those people are speaking for. Do they think they're just speaking for themselves and I like my view or I like my area as it is? Or are they speaking to wider concerns about the quality of development coming into an area? And I think it's difficult, and it's difficult for me as an external observer, to um, put those judgments onto people's motivations. I think planning is very helpful in this and planning in a way which thinks about things such as the need for um, social infrastructure. So whether that's schools, doctors, open spaces, social spaces in this and um, ensures that they're not sort of an add-on at the end of a development. Something that genuinely listens to some of the concerns around what people feel is the problem with some of the proposals here. And I think lots of that, again, is still about the scale, also about the scale of affordability and affordable housing within these proposed developments seem very low, seem to be, below, Bristol City Council seem to have lowered its expectations and they've been lowered again in the developments. So that that's problematic, what's being built there, if it's not actually homes for a range of people. It's a very paradoxical question. Something I've had a few conversations um, with others that are interested in this one. It's about how do you do public consultation for a public that isn't there yet if you're looking at large-scale new developments? And I suppose that's, again, listening to some of the people that are there already, thinking about whose voices are not part of the process and thinking about the way that development can be socially beneficial and brought together more holistically there's lots of examples from Germany and the Netherlands of large-scale redevelopment being master planned in a way that allows space for things such as self-built housing more genuinely affordable um, housing being built through co-ops and other such organizations because you've got land assembled on a large scale because the private sector has a clear and defined role and an ability to make money and profit from the land but not in the way that it's quite often done. Um, in this country, in this context, which is at the exclusion of other developments. I've not come across anyone explicitly saying, as a developer, they've hired a load of artists, stuck them into some warehouse so that they can sell the land for more money. I think it's th- these whole debates end up slightly putting the blame on artists for what's really about the property market and property market speculation. And artists will go to places that there's space to create in and affordable space to create in, and that adds to the vibrancy of our cities, our towns, wherever else that this happens. There may, needs to be, and in some of the debate around planning and land value capture, there's a sense about how can you adequately tax the profits on development that accounts for things such as that rather than as a developer you just scoop up things whether that's a good school in a neighborhood oh yes our land is now worth so much more because those teachers were working really hard or oh they've put in a a nice new train station therefore our land so how do you equalize some of those sorts of the, the gains that one party gets because of what another party is doing and maybe around um arts and artists there's a sense of having a broader meanwhile use strategy in a city, ensuring that there's always a certain amount of space available at very low cost for artists, wherever that is, ensuring that artists are consulted when new cultural spaces or new community spaces are being built, that they're in a way that is um, useful and meaningful for uh, creative practices, as well as just providing a sort of village hall style building that you can have a kid's party in, but maybe it's not so good for anything else. There's those wider things around social infrastructure in development. If you're provided with a nice council-designed set of floor space, is that what you really want or need? It depends who you are and what it is that you're trying to do in that space. I think the city as a space to be creative is of value itself and we need to be better as planners I think something that planners are not terribly good at is actually talking about the values of places and spaces which aren't for work or housing or something really obvious and tangible and more more off the mainstream of ideas they're not shops, they're not schools, they're not houses they're not offices they're spaces that can hold more than one uh, value and hold more than one use at a time
0: Plants native to an environment before a disruption may be forced out by opportunistic ruderals that thrive in low quality and compressed soil, cracks in the concrete or block drains, as they grow ever taller towards the sun. Among the many ruderal plants I came across in the wasteland, I didn't find any more numerous than small dotted growths of Plantago Major the broadleaf plantain. Not in any way related to the plantain of the banana family, Plantago Major is a small flowering and stringy leaf plant that thrives in compressed and disturbed soils, making it an excellent coloniser of urban spaces. But it also has another name, known by Native Americans at the time of European colonisation as White Man's Footprint named such because it thrived in the compressed soils and damaged ecosystems that grew around the invasive colonial settlements. The ability of the plantain to withstand frequent trampling makes it vital in the process of soil rehabilitation of brownfield and urban wasteland spaces in order to facilitate the conditions for further ruderals to move in.
5: My name's Henry Palmer, and I wrote a book about the gentrification of Bristol, Voices of Bristol, Gentrification and Us. So growing up in my part of Whitehall, which was opposite Chelsea Park, bit of a notorious park back in the day, around the corner from City Academy School, was a mixture of good and bad. It was good in so far as its being cosmopolitan and diverse was concerned. I grew up next to Jamaicans, Indians, Africans which instilled in me, and I think everybody around that area, an acceptance of other cultures. But there were negatives as well. Um, The European Commission in 1998 classed our ward of Easton, which uh, that part of Whitehall was a part, as one of the most deprived wards in the whole of the southwest of England. And this was true to my experience. What do we find with more deprived areas? We find higher levels of crime, higher levels of... Um, substance abuse. My own experience was being threatened with a gun on a psychopath, being beat up numerous times in the area, Um, threats. When I came back from university in 2016 I studied philosophy and film studies down in Kent Uni. Something that was really quite telling for me was I was working as an Uber driver. I did it for a year and I would speak to two tiers of people if you like, who could be judged based on the response that they'd give when I'd say that I was from Eastern. in that they'd either respond, oh, show us your bullet wounds, or, oh, nice. And it was this latter response, which was really telling and shocking to me, because I'd never, ever heard Eastern described as nice before. And so this is really explained by gentrification, which, if you don't know, is effectively the migration of a higher socioeconomic group into a, lo- a traditionally lower socioeconomic area. Why? Because it's closer to town or um, you know what you you generally find is people move to these inner city areas because they're cheaper um, there's more amenities more opportunities and this is what happened and and uh, in eastern and and is happening right now so you know there's there's more bars around now uh, sort of sort of spirit bars and things like that which we never experienced you know our version if you like 15 to 20 years ago was an unsuccessful builder's pub. In terms of house prices, uh, in the late 90s, the average house price around there was about three, four times average income. Now it's more it's more around the area of 10 to 14 times. So there's definitely been a change. Um, Whitehall Easton's one of the areas which is being gentrified.
0: With the successful colonisation of space after space, ruderals prevent the disturbed area from ever reverting back to the original state before the disturbance occurred. The natural state of the area is transformed forever. East Street is an interesting and diverse mix of people, buildings, businesses, and sounds. Despite there being increasingly more shuttered shops, there appears to be a strong sense of community. Side roads that had connected to East Street before the pedestrianisation are now cut off by colourfully graffitied and regenerated wheelie bin planters from which various local ruderal grasses and shrubs grow. Flanked by slick wooden benches in an overtly obvious attempt at beautification, it is a sanitised appropriation of ruderal aesthetics present in graffiti covered underpasses and skate parks. I'm now standing in the empty warehouse where my studio used to be. The maze-like plasterboard walls that had previously divided the echoey metal-arched hallway into individual studios are now gone. Aside from general clutter lining the walls, the floor is bare. The planning permission for the development has been given the go-ahead, meaning the demolition is imminent.
5: There'll be fewer Bristolian accents. House prices will continue to surge. The locals who've been there for generations will be pushed further south, and a new culture will develop. I, I think the way things are going, it'd be very difficult to to stunt it or to to, put, you know, to stop it now. I think it, it, it as it goes further south, gentrification it'll come down to places like Hartcliffe and Norwest. West. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see as urbanization you know, spreads further south, like it did in London 50, 70 years ago, how those communities react. Because they are bloody strong, strong council estate communities. So that'd be really interesting. One of the main pillars of South Bristol gentrification, representative institutions, buildings, is the tobacco factory. Uh, What George Ferguson did in the 1990s in purchasing that and enabling it as a place for, as a bar, um, as a theatre, necessarily was going to appeal to higher socioeconomic groups. Um, Although Shakespeare was for audiences where 80% of the audience couldn't read and write, that's not the case now, right? It's necessarily appeals to higher socioeconomic groups. And I think that explains why places like North Street have been more quickly to gentrify than places like East Street. I understand the negative consequences of gentrification in in two terms really, uh, economic consequences and cultural consequences. I think the economic financial consequences are worse, that is being priced out, uh, you know, not being able to afford to rent or buy. Examples of cultural consequences, things like... So the the local poet, Lawrence Hill, from around St. Paul's, a cultural consequence that he spoke about, a cultural clash, if you like, was um, made to feel... Again, born and bred here, um, about 50 years old, but made to feel as though he's a threat through gentrifier's reaction to him. That is, they see him in the street. He's a um, mixed-heritage Jamaican uh, Bristolian and he's visibly seen them check their wallet when he's walking down the street. So the financial consequences are it being the housing crisis, um, housing being unaffordable uh, unaffordable rent, unaffordable purchase prices. Uh, you know, In the late 90s, again, it was something like three to four times annual income to buy a house. Now it's up to 14%. And that's been exasperated by effectively 40 years of neoliberal conservative policies, Libertarian policies started with Margaret Thatcher in 1980, with the right to buy policy, which enabled council tenants um, to buy their council property. They could before, but it was it was seldom really granted. So since 1980, we've we've seen a huge shortage in the stock of council houses that the state owns. It was 33% council housing in Bristol in 1980, now it's 13%. And if we're to go off national trends, about 42% of those will belong to to buy-to-let landlords. One of the big consequences of this, or or big issues with this, is that none of the money that was made was allowed to be reinvested into into council properties. So the right-to-buy policy needs to be reversed and retracted, and council houses need to be uh, bought. Uh, a land value tax needs to be brought in. Currently, council tax is based on uh, old fashioned, antiquated 1990s uh, stats. Right now, a developer can hold on to land and not be deterred from just sitting on it. If you bring in a land tax, it deters that. Uh, you bring in a rent cap. We had a rent cap actually up until uh, 1957, I believe. California actually between the years 1994 through through a rent cap being brought about and 2010, renters saved something like $2.2 billion. Uh, co- collective ownership. Uh, the exchange is a great example of a, of a bar, pub, which is collectively owned by about 400-450 different people in Old Market. The fact that it's collectively owned means that it's never liable to be bought up by private developers who want to extort it for you know uh, effectively property for um profit at the expense of people abolish buy to let mortgages just this really preposterous policy that came in, in the late 1990s which effectively says do you want to make money from owning things here you go It's not a sustainable solution. Immanuel Kant speaks about something being just and moral insofar as it's in line with the rule of universality. In other words, if not everybody can do it, then it's not just.
0: searching for a new old warehouse to facilitate an affordable and accessible creative space the only available buildings within that range of affordability are located in similarly deindustrializing neighborhoods further out from the city's core this movement begins the cycle once again with this action repeated a thousand times development population displacement gentrification the city grows ever outwards like thorny tendrils of the wasteland growing bramble reaching out for space and light. As these anthropogenic disturbances of urbanization irreversibly alter the natural environment, the whole earth itself becomes a rural landscape. Huge thank you to Sean Roy Parker, Katie McClymont, and Henry Palmer for their time and contribution. A big thank you to Jack Gibbon and Jessica Ackerman from BRICS and producer Rowan Bishop for all the production support.
1: This podcast was brought to you by BRICS. BRICS brings together the people of Bristol through collaborative art projects, public realm producing, community-led co-design and securing the spaces our communities need to thrive. On our site, you'll also find a blog post with links and images related to the subjects covered in this episode and profiles of all our artists and projects, so go check it out at bricksbristol.org. As a new, independent charity, we rely on the support of people like you so that we can support our communities. If you can, please consider supporting our work through donating the price of a sandwich, buying a tote bag or purchasing an artwork from our online shop. Big thanks to Arts Council England and National Lottery players for funding this episode as part of the BRICS Artist Programme.